to Vermont Ed Reads, the podcast for, with, and by Vermont educators. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and in this episode, we're joined by Dolan and talking about Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Riviera. Along the way, we talk white fragility, preferred pronouns, and how your students can let you know what's safe and appropriate for them in different settings. We learn about Gloria and Zaldua's Borderlands and answer the question, what can adults do to support students in their activism? Plus, I confess my shortcomings as a meditator. Yup. Vermont Head Reads. Let's chat. Thank you for joining me, Dolan. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I, my name is Dolan, and I go by they, them pronouns. I currently live in Vermont, and I'm in a doctoral program with Jeannie, which is really lovely, in educational leadership and policy studies. And before that, I worked for six years um, coordinating and directing LGBTQ resources and services on college campuses on different campuses across the country, and most recently moved here from California after that. Before that was Missouri. Before that, I was here in Vermont doing my master's program in the higher ed student affairs HESA program, which is a really transformative experience for me. I love reading, especially queer, trans, people of color, or QTPOC fiction. It's really fun to get lost in a book, especially a book that pushes me or resonates with me or one maybe I feel seen in. I am biracial. I'm white and Latinx. My mom was born in Cuba. And I definitely feel that I have a lot of white privilege and white passing privilege. I am queer, I'm bisexual, and I'm non-binary, which is why I go by they, them pronouns, although some non-binary people go by different pronouns as well. And I'm excited to be on this podcast today. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. We talk about books all the time. And one of the questions I ask my guests is, what book are they um, reading now? And you are always reading a ton of books. And as you walked in, you were like, I just now finished The Water Dancer, a book I adored. So I wondered if you wanted to share any other highlights from your reading list. Yeah, I literally, as you said, just finished The Water Dancer moments before this podcast recording. It was a beautiful read, really beautiful um, POC fiction that I recommend to everyone. Uh, Before that, and also right now, I'm finishing up Eloquent Rage and also finishing Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I have a few more that I'm about to read, but I can't remember the names of. I use the Libby app and love downloading audiobooks and listening that way and supporting my local libraries. So um, yeah, this past winter break, since I'm a student, I read a lot of really fun books. And one that sticks out to me is Darius the Great is Not Okay. I loved that uh, young adult novel. So definitely recommend that one too. That's a great one. And yay, public libraries. Yay, libraries. Um, I also just want... um, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar, could you talk to me a little bit about the um, um, the shorthand you use? You just use POC, and that stands for people of color. Is there other shorthand you might use that we might spell out for listeners as they listen? Yeah, so like I said, I sometimes say QT POC for queer and trans people of color. I found living on the East Coast, people say POC for people of color. And um, living on the West Coast, I found people say POC for people of color. So 
I don't know, I've bounced back and forth because I've lived in both places and I'm still readjusting to the East Coast lingo. But when I say POC or POC, I'm referring to people of color. So what I mean by that personally is non-white people. And that can be people mixed with white like myself or um, or others who are not mixed with white, people who are mixed um, or not mixed in general. And so usually that looks like black, indigenous, uh, Latinx or Latino, Latina people, and um, Asian, Pacific Islanders, um, Middle Eastern, other people who might identify. Um, I also use the word Latinx instead of Latino or Latina because Latinx, while some people feel confused by that term because it's less pronounceable in Spanish. Um, it's a word that was created by Latino, Latina, Latinx people to acknowledge the fact that our language, Spanish, is gendered, that all nouns and adjectives, almost all of them, completely have gender, which is very s strange in my opinion and um, a little bit constricting for people like myself and many, many others who identify outside of the gender binary or just generally feel restricted by that binary. So a lot of times when words end in O and A in Spanish, people put an X there, which again is a challenging pronunciation, but it's more so to acknowledge that the binary isn't really real. Yeah. It's a figment of our imagination <laughs> and that it can be really even violent towards folks. So um, a lot of times I'll say Latinx in this, especially talking about Juliet. Mm, I so appreciate uh, you breaking down those words for us. Words have so much power. And um, so I'm, I'm trying uh, in my life in general to be more um, intentional with the words that I use. And I just really appreciate you uh, making that accessible to us. So let's dig in to Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera. I wondered if you could introduce us to the narrator of our story here, Juliet. Yeah, so Juliet grew up and, you know, was growing up in the Bronx in the book. Um, she identifies in some ways as gay, as queer, or part of the LGBTQ community. She has a girlfriend. You find that out, like, on page four. <laughs> um, and she's Boricua, so she's Puerto Rican. That's a word that a lot of Puerto Rican folks use to describe themselves. She's kind of coming into herself throughout the entire book and learning to love all parts of herself, striving for authenticity in all areas of her life. She's navigating sometimes the harsh terrain of Puerto Rican Catholicism and Latinx familia, figuring out what it looks like to be young, to be queer, to be closeted. Um, in the beginning of the book and figuring out how to be authentic in that space where she's really embraced in her culture. And she's kind of dodging those questions at home about a boyfriend or a husband in the future. She shines brightly with her girlfriend in the beginning of the book too. And she's still learning kind of the hard way that this white supremacist society teaches us that she lives at the intersections of a lot of marginalization. So she's still learning that being in her brown Puerto Rican family, she's hiding a part of herself for protection, her queerness. And she seems to be desperate for more queer-friendly spaces while she's, you know, to seek protection from homophobia and sexism and the harassment that she's experiencing a lot. She talks in her first chapter about experiencing some street harassment. And at the same time, she's expecting, and she has every right to expect, a non-racist queer space, which many of us know is 
hard to come by. Um, she's still reckoning with the fact that much of the violence she experiences isn't just sexist, it's racialized. And I think she's learning that throughout the book, that men harass her because of her brown body, her curvy body, her Latina body is very sexualized by society, not just her woman body. And so I think Juliet is still figuring herself out and very open and honest and vulnerable about that, at least with the reader, and very humble in that way, grounded in that humility of, I want to learn about feminism and queerness. I have this girlfriend, but I still have to pay homage to my, you know, my elders in the queer community. And I think she still is learning that she has a lot to give um, and a lot to teach. One of the early on that in that chapter, she is struggling with how to come out to her family, and um, I think especially her mother. And um, she's already out to her little brother, who is bloody adorable, amazing, and also challenges notions of Latinx mas- masculinity, right? And um, he is a total sweetheart. Um, but she wants to come out to the rest of her family. And one of the things that I really loved about this book was. Um, the tenuous way Gabby Rivera sort of um, walks this fine line of like, I need to be who I am and be honest about that. And I really need to be connected to my family. She's not willing just to reject them. And I wondered if that was also her experience as a person of color. I think so. A lot of times queer communities look very white. And part of that then perpetuates this narrative that communities of color and you know um, families of color are more homophobic or transphobic, queerphobic. And it's just not the case, 100% just not the case. I just think that it's more, it's a much more complex narrative than reading this book and saying, oh yeah, Latinx people are homophobic or Juliet's mom is just, you know, really homophobic in the beginning. It's, she's living in this world and wants the best for her daughter. And while the best for her daughter is not for her to be as heterosexual as possible, it's the way she's thinking, right? And we have to hold space for that and hold some forgiveness for that and and recognize that this was an act of protection and survival and not um, because brown people are more homophobic. Yeah. I appreciate that because I think it also leads us along into the story because Juliet, as a a very young college student, is heading out for an internship. Um, She has discovered this author that that has been life-changing for her, Harlow. She's written this um, sort of feminist treatise that really resonates for Juliet. And Juliet's heading to Portland, Oregon, um, which in the book it cracks me up that her family's always saying, "Right, you're going to Iowa," or like they're oh they're like Portland feels so far away yes. from them, mm-hmm. but she's heading to Portland, Oregon, uh, which is a really white space. So you've set us up nicely to think about Juliet's experience as um, uh, a, a person of color heading to this very white space. She's really excited because she's also heading to this really queer space, and I think that Juliet. See, doesn't doesn't know to look for both of those things. She sees, oh wow, this is some queer haven where people are saying this. This writer is writing all these queer friendly, queer affirming things. That must be what I need, right? Because I'm held in my brownness at home, but I'm not necessarily being held in my queerness right now. So I need to go be held in my queerness 
right? And that's where I think we need to be thinking intersectionally because I feel for Juliet, this is so real, so valid that she would run towards that and not recognize that she unfortunately won't be held in her brownness in that space. Right, that, that, and the intersection of the two. Um, and so it, she, one of the people that lives in the house with Harlow uh, early on in the book takes her out. I think it's her second day in Portland, her first full day in Portland. And he takes her out to sort of get to know the town. And, um, and he, you know, he's having a rough time himself. And he gets really adversarial with her. And he starts asking her about her preferred pronouns. And uh, she's never heard this phrase before. So for our listeners who maybe haven't either, uh, could you talk a little bit about what we mean when we say preferred pronouns? Yeah, so pronouns are this very simple yet very complex thing. We use pronouns all the time in the English language to refer to people in the first, second, and third person without using their names. And so when we're talking about pronouns, we're talking about third person pronouns. Those look like he and she, right, Um, in the singular, right? And so when we're talking about people, we'll say, oh, I met up with him, I went to dinner with her, I, I, I know her, whatever it might be, right? And so we have to recognize the gendering that happens in those third person pronouns. And so queer folks, trans folks created this new way of talking about ourselves because a lot of folks have said, you know, we can't be what we can't see. And we have to be able to create language to talk about ourselves because we're creating new ways of being and living. And if we're not able to talk about it, other folks won't see us. And, um, we are paving paths for others to be able to see themselves in us. And so gender-inclusive pronouns are ways that we ask folks to refer to us that aren't misgendering to us, because not everyone identifies as a man with he pronouns or a woman with she pronouns. And so gender-inclusive pronouns often look like using they-them pronouns, which, again, is kind of a repurposed plural plural pronoun that we all know if, if English is our language of use. They're ways of acknowledging people that we wouldn't be able to acknowledge. And I have to say, as a person who uses they, them pronouns and is non-binary, when people misgender me, it hurts not just because, oh, they made a grammar mistake. It's never about that, right? I fully recognize that it takes a lot of relearning, unlearning in order to use these newer words for folks or using old words like they in new ways. I know I'm asking a lot of shifting the autopilot of language that so many of us have written in our brains when English was our first language and it's just an automatic way we equate English with language when English is not our first language and we're really having to think through each word. I recognize that's really tricky, especially if folks are translating in their heads as they're speaking. It's complicated. so. I think the most important thing and the the most amazing thing that folks can do is recognize that we can't know someone's pronouns without asking and to provide some space for folks to name their pronouns. So when you're in a meeting or a class, in the beginning, if people are introducing themselves, ask folks to offer their pronouns as well, right? Um, If you're making name tags for a conference or for a one-day thing or for permanent um, name tags for people's offices, names and pronouns, right? If we couldn't guess your name, we couldn't guess your pronoun. Um, And one more thing I'll share is that they can change over time and in different contexts, right? Let's say Juliet wanted to use they, them pronouns for for themselves 
But at home, maybe that wasn't safe. So when we're talking with Juliet's mom, we're using she, her, right? When we're talking with Juliet in class, we're using they, them. And so checking in with folks and saying, hey, I just want to be a support to you. Let me know if this shifts for you or if there are ways that I can support you. And a lot of times, if you have a young student, for example, I see this a lot in youth, where at their GSA, they'll say, oh, I want to use these pronouns. But when you're meeting with my parent at the parent-teacher conference, use these pronouns, right? And that's a way of protecting someone and letting them play with their identity and their language a little to see what fits. Yeah, I've had that experience actually in, in schools um, of, of using one set of pronouns with the student and a different set of pronouns on the report card or with the family. Um, and it's super important to keep um, LGBTQ folks safe. Absolutely. Um, and that's our job. I'm going to insert into the transcript my yearly public service announcement, which is the LGBTQ Bill of Rights for students, which is an important document that um, I think should be at schools everywhere. Um, is there a role for allyship in this? If I'm with you and somebody misgenders you, mm-hmm. What's my role as your friend, as your ally? I think it's tricky because you may be with a youth or you may be with someone in front of their family. Like I said, it can change based on the context. So a lot of times I say one of the best first steps can be to check in with the person afterwards. Hey, I was in that room and I noticed that someone misgendered you. How can I support you, right? And I think that's huge because that that non-binary person, that trans person definitely noticed that they were misgendered. (laughs) Very rarely am I like, oh, they did? (laughs) I almost (laughs) always know that, yes, you're right. Thank you for noticing. I felt alone in that moment. I felt isolated and unseen, and you saw me. That is so helpful. I just so appreciate this conversation. And um, I think uh, Juliet in the book could have really benefited from a friend like you to sort of help them navigate like because they they, she sits there for a long time and struggles with like what even is that that's a big undertone of that interaction that she has with this man and there's something to be said about her being consistently marginalized around even not being queer enough which is a big narrative in our communities unfortunately for this space and she is not able to see herself reflected back in this community and feel like she can contribute and teach and be part of, you know, that that's that space because she doesn't know enough, which is not fair when we weaponize our own work against each other, right? This reminds me of a conversation I had last night with um, a friend of mine who um, works with a lot of ELL students. And um, this student who's Nepali, um, is taking a Spanish class. And she said to my friend who's working with her, all of the white kids in the Spanish class are so good. And and um, my friend, uh, Jory, says, um, well, do you think it's because that you're, this is your third language you're learning? Do you think mm-hmm. that they, she finally said, do you think they would be as smart in Nepal? Ooh. And uh, she was like, no. And so I think in a way, the way I bring this back to Juliet, because in a way what Juliet's seeing is like, oh, is it because I'm brown that I don't, right? And she's really like this, like seeing this white perspective and feeling like she doesn't know enough. And meanwhile, nobody in the whole place is acknowledging anything about her Puerto Rican background. Absolutely. Absolutely. They just, and they don't feel like they need to take responsibility for that learning. And 
it's it's a very complex pattern throughout the book. It's a double standard, right? You Absolutely. need to know all of these things to fit into the queer mm-hmm. community, but we don't need to know anything right. about your cultural exactly. background. And we will punch your card when you're ready, right? Your queer card. <laughs> and that's just nonsense. Yeah. But not all the spaces Juliet experiences are like that. Um, she gets taken to a, a writer warrior's workshop. Um, and uh, which is introduced, um, and I wonder maybe we could read a few pages. I mean, it, it, you could read it or I could read it from pages one hundred six to one hundred seven to introduce this space. So before I start reading, for those of you who are following along at home, it's on page one hundred six, and Juliet is in this space being hosted by Zaida, and Zaida is a black queer woman, and Zaida says. Hello, beautiful women writers. Welcome to Honoring Our Ancestors, the writers war- the Writer Warriors Workshop series. Thank you for your presence. I'd like to ask all of you to turn to your neighbor, look her in the eyes, and say, thank you, sister, for sharing your time and essence. Juliet says, I almost laughed, but the silence and reverence in the room pushed that laugh back into my chest. The woman next to me breastfed her baby. Such a beautiful and weird thing, breastfeeding. The mom held her child with one arm and reached out to me with the other. She said, slightly breathless, Thank you, sister, for sharing your time and essence. I repeated the blessing, holding her hand in her child's hand. Zaida blessed her neighbors on both sides. Ashe, everyone. I'm Zaida Crest, founder of Black Womanists United, and we are here to celebrate the legacy of our sister, Octavia Butler, one of the greatest writers of all time. Octavia gave us worlds caught in post-apocalyptic struggles, narratives billowing with critiques of the way racism and brutality are ingrained in white American society and culture, a culture that we must also navigate and reclaim. Octavia gave us the means to do that via a genre where there are no limits. This writing series is for the empowerment of black women and femmes and the development of a black womanist, Afrofuturistic writers group. Blackness isn't limited to African-Americans here. We welcome our Afro-Latinas también y toda la gente morena, negrita, el color de la, de la noche y, cafe, y de café con leche. Many of our meetings are closed to non-black, non-POC, or POC individuals, but members of the group expressed interest in offering open sessions. White allies, we ask that you respect the space, own your privileges, and remain open to your own journey. We welcome all women here and hope that we can find we can all find or further cultivate our relationship to Octavia Butler's work and to the world of science fiction. In this series of workshops, we will also produce an anthology of sci-fi short stories with a social justice lens from writers of color. Thank you, sisters, for sharing your time and essence with us all. Uh, Thank you for that. I'm so glad you brought your Spanish accent to that, too. Um, First, before we go anywhere else, can we just express our mutual appreciation and love for Octavia Butler? Yes. She's so amazing. I really want to just beg everyone to please read all of her books. Kindred's currently on my nightstand, and I've only read her Earth series so far, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, but holy moly um this just it's just amazing dystopian fiction that will feel way realer than 1984 so we just needed to get that out of the way because we have talked about octavia butler a bunch um but let's go back because what ends up happening is and i'm going to read this part because it's the white woman's part okay so on page 110 you know they're they're finishing up this workshop 
where Juliet is like, she's a writer, but she's doubting that she's a science fiction writer. And she's rediscovering Octavia Butler's brand of science fiction, which is a little bit different. Um, but uh, as they're leaving, uh, Juliet overhears a conversation. And here it is. Here it is. The three of us passed two young white women who had been in the workshop with us. They were near the water fountains. I paused for a sip. White girl number one. I love the workshop, but like, I don't get why the white ally thing has to be such a big deal. Like, why do we have to be the quiet ones? All our voices matter, you know. White girl number two. Exactly. It's like in my feminism, we're equals. Why does any group have to have the dominant voice? I know reverse racism isn't technically real, but like, this kind of felt like that. Maxine and I rolled our eyes. <laughs> you're cracking up over there. I am. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking. Just the, I know reverse racism doesn't exist, but you know it's never going to go in a good place after that. I just know that. And after, literally right, the line right after you, you stopped reading is that Juliet kind of says as the narrator, I didn't really know what was wrong from what they said, but it felt weird. And I want to acknowledge that. It's so valid. I love that she shares that with the reader. How Juliet maybe hasn't read a book about privilege and whiteness and white supremacy, but she knew in her bones, in her gut, in her heart, her soul, that what, what just happened wasn't right, you know? And she didn't need that academic training on the topic to know it, right? And later on, just a few pages after that, Harlow gets in the car with um, Zaida and some others, and she had just like talked to a group of white women who were fawning after her writing. And Harlow's a white woman, a white writer. Exactly. And she sits in the car. I think she's the only white woman in the car. Everyone else is a woman of color after this, this session. And she's just kind of like humphing. And Juliet talks about how she's all pointy and all edges and very sharp, you know. And um, she's just making this stink, right? And how a lot of times white women, white feminists, white queer feminists can't really acknowledge that racism still exists right now, still, in all of us, day to day, in our interactions, we're witnesses to it and we're perpetrators of it, right? And I say that as a person who's half white, half Latinx, super white passing, right? I'm totally part of the problem and experience it sometimes. And so it's a real thing. And I love the way that Gabby Rivera walks us through this because it's so daily <laughs> and the way that Juliet makes meaning of it because she doesn't have all the words and all the jargon but she totally gets it in her gut that what happened was wonky right right and we're so used to being centered in our histories in the literature that mm -hmm. um that we read in school and out of school exactly. uh in the news on television and movies and so suddenly when our experience isn't centered or when we're asked to you know stay a little quieter make a little space uh, and i say that we as a white woman mm -hmm. me we uh when we as white folks are asked to do that it pinches mm -hmm. and uh I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and um, practice to get used to being like, oh, other people experience this all the time and we don't even ask it of them. Right. It just happens. You're making me think of something. Uh, I am a very novice meditator. <laughs> I should meditate more probably. But uh, when, you know, when I'm learning meditation, when I'm focusing on meditation, one of the things is when your mind wanders, which it will, mm -hmm. um, the work 
the practice is really about coming back to the present moment, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so what you're making me think about is the practice here is about like, oh, oh, there's my fragility again. Yes. It's the noticing and naming, just like in meditation, yeah. right? And that comes back to pronouns. Yes. When we mess up, it's mm-hmm. the noticing and the naming. Oh, I so appreciate the way you're weaving this together for mm-hmm. me. Um so, Juliet, uh, besides going to writers' workshops with uh, with cool people and um, uh, a- and other social events around Portland, is also has a job to do. And one of her tasks is to investigate uh, this like weird collection of paper slips with the names of of powerful women on them. Um, that Harlow has collected. And um, so one of the women she seeks out is um, Lolita LeBron. Um, She's at the local library where there's a bit of a love interest that was really fun to read about. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she gets really angry because she didn't know about Lolita LeBron, who is a Puerto Rican uh, revolutionary. And... um, it reminded me very much. She gets like ticked. She's like, how did my family never talk to me about this? My Puerto Rican family, where is this story? How did I never learn it? And it reminded me at the middle grades conference of a student from Edmonds Middle School. um, And um, an, an adult in the room, a teacher in the room asked, what could adults do to support them in their activism? And he responded, how come nobody ever teaches us about inequity? Mm. I wish adults would teach us about what is going on in the world. And so I'm just curious about how you reacted to the Lolita LeBron section. Yeah, it's so real. We don't realize how much we're centering white people in our history and in our pedagogy as much until we read something else. (laughs) And it's like, oh, my God, how did I not know? And for me, this makes me think immediately about learning about uh, Gloria Anzaldúa for the first time way too late in my life. When I was like 24 or 25 in grad school the first time, she talks about living in the borderlands in her book, Borderlands La Frontera. And this book (laughs) cracked me open and made me feel whole at the same time. So as a biracial, bisexual, non-binary person, also a Gemini, I feel her words on a visceral level, this living between, sometimes in different lands, never truly belonging, perhaps only belonging in the liminal space of the border itself and not knowing who our people are. And it was powerful for me because I had embodied so many experiences but didn't know how to name it and also felt so isolated. And so it comes back to this you can't be what you can't see, right? Or this way of when someone names an experience, you feel seen and you feel less alone, right? Because I was like, wow, I'm not the only person who lives on some borderlands, right? And so I read her book. I think I was assigned one chapter for something. I read the whole thing. I just couldn't put it down. And it had so much Spanish and Spanglish in it that she just unapologetically read, wrote in both languages and a mixture of language and some words she made up. And I just loved, and I just cried. I cried hearing the words of my people and reflecting on the colonization of language itself, this idea that Spanish came from the conquistadores and is really not the indigenous language at all. And she identifies as indigenous and queer. It was so much for me, for her to analyze some and all of that in different passages and talk about queerness 
in those spaces and even gender, it really helped me kind of split open and begin to heal. And I realized how much I had been thinking I was self-protecting <laughs> um, by building this, you know, deep shell of protection, the shield. But it really, when I read someone else who had a similar experience, again, I, I have a lot of privilege and I don't want to pretend like my experience is the same as Gloria Anzaldúas, but she spoke to my soul. What you're making me think about is the importance of being seen, being seen in literature, in history, in story, and what you talked about earlier about being seen for who you are and how you're um, gendered, how your pronouns are used. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and as a librarian, like for me, my mission was really to make sure that all of my students could be seen um, affirmatively, mm -hmm. appreciatively in my collection. And um, so that just like really touches me. And I think that Lolita LeBron makes, um, helps Juliet feel seen in, in a way for her heritage in this place where you're talking about she wanted to be seen for her queerness. Now she's in this white queer space and now she gets to be seen mm -hmm. for her Puerto Ricanness. And how even when Juliet probably learned about Puerto Rican people, it was probably on like a half page in a multicultural section of her social studies book. And on top of that, it was probably this very whitewashed or normative narrative of someone assimilating to white culture and not Lebron's narrative, which is like attempting murder and, you know, assaulting the House of Representatives and really, I mean, being incredible, right? In some ways, like fighting and not taking no for an answer for liberation, right? And how that is kind of taught to us as like not really worthy of true history or maybe it's not as notable or you know as loving as a Rosa Parks story or the way that we sanitize people like Rosa Parks and, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? There's no real sanitization of Lolita Lebron, right? And so when she reads about this person, she's just like, I'm allowed to be unapologetic and there's so much power and empowerment in that. Yeah. She stays in the library for like full days reading these books. about, And she's even distracted from the crush she has. Ooh. She's so interested in mm -hmm. Lolita. Um, so uh, I'm going to move us along a little bit further. Um, there's a really interesting point in the book on page 182 that um, I want to ask you about because I... I need help thinking about it. And, and you sort of mentioned it before about the ways we expect um, uh, queer folks and people of color to sort of educate us all the time. And so at this point in the book, um, Harlow is asking Juliet um, for her opinion about a racial issue. And um, here's what Maxine, um, Harlow's partner, says. Now, hold on just a minute, Maxine said. Are you going to write me and Juliet checks for our analysis on race? Because our labor isn't free. <laughs> and it's important to note that Maxine is also a woman of color, right? Right. So I think there's this really interesting juxtaposition for me of Juliet learning about pronouns from this very like white normative lens of like how did you not read the the right books about pronouns how are you not hip enough with this elitist academic academic knowledge and this white woman asking about a race issue right a racialized feminist issue and expecting the folks of color the women of color in her life to constantly just fill in those gaps to do all the work and use it for myself. That's the other piece is a lot of times white folks learn things from folks of color 
not even from like taking the time to read a book and really situate themselves in some context. They'll ask their friend a question. Their friend will give an individual answer as a person, right? As me, not as all brown people, right? I will tell you the answer to this question. And then that white person will then use it in all the spaces and be like, well, this one brown person told me that it's totally okay to say this. I have black friends. Exactly. And they said I could do this and that or say this and that or show up this way or that way or that whatever. Wait a second. My black friend says I can use the N-word. No. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you you saw my sarcasm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, right, like, no, 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 no. Um, first of all, that's co-opting some space and some power that is just, it's, that's violent, right? But also, um, it creates this weird monolith asking this brown or black person to speak for all brown and black people, and that's just garbage, right? Um but I think there's this, yeah, this interesting thing around the unpaid labor is just like people of color as marginalized people are expected to know the norms of white culture and society, right? But white people are not expected to know their norms, right, of, of communities of color. So folks of color are living in their own brown norms, their own cultural norms at home with their communities, whatever that looks like. And then they're also having to code switch into white norms and white society, right? Quote unquote. And then white people are like, oh, how do I how do I act around brown people? Hey, brown person, explain this to me. Or is it okay to do this as a white person? Why not? Right? Not recognizing A, sometimes it's really harmful to hear that stuff come out of a white person's mouth, to sit there and go, I still need to tell you that, right? <laughs> I need you to go write that in your journal instead. <laughs> That's what I like to tell people sometimes because it can be really harmful to hear that and feel objectified and tokenized. Google it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and you're making me think about you're making me think about how um, the the extra emotional labor people of color do as educators, right? Because not only are they uh, code switching with norms and communities, not only are they making sure the needs of their students of color are being met, but they're also dealing with racism all day, every day. Absolutely. And making the white people around them comfortable about it, right? Well, speaking of tokenization... Stuff really goes down in this book. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I got to page 206, when I got to the end of the page 206, I remember texting you. <laughs> like, oh my God, Harlow just did what? Yep. Because mm-hmm. here we are. Harlow is giving this big book event for Raging Flower, her feminist uh, tome. And um, Juliet has helped set up this book event. And uh, I'm just going to read a portion of it. Harlow gets challenged by a person of color about um, uh, about the colorblindness within her feminism, yep. I'll say. Um, so part of her answer is, do I think that queer and trans women of color will read my work and feel like they see themselves in my words? Not necessarily, but some will and do. I mean, I know someone right now sitting in this room who is a testament to this. Someone who isn't white, who grew up in a ghetto. Someone who is a lesbian and Latina and fought for her whole life to make it out of the Bronx alive to get an education. She grew up in poverty and without any privilege. And it goes on. But oh my goodness. So I felt this on so many layers. And I'm not going to begin to uh, compare my experience to Juliet's, but I will say that um, the first time I brought some college friends home to my house in Pennsylvania, I went to the University of Maryland, uh, one of my friends said, I didn't know you lived near the projects. 
And mm. I had no idea. So I felt this word ghetto mm -hmm. to my very core. Because mm -hmm. Juliet doesn't think of her home as a ghetto. None of these things are how Juliet would describe herself. Absolutely. And so it's so many layers. It, it throws Juliet into this, is that all you see me as? It shows the reader this pattern of behavior from Harlow of not just her white fragility, but the ways that she uses brown and black bodies as tokens of her wokeness, quote unquote, and the ways in which she's able to say, see, I'm not just for white people because I surround myself with brown and black people and I use them as pawns. Gabby Rivera is pointing to a group of people who have been acting this way for a long period of time, white queer feminists in general, right? So, so what that makes me, so my take on this, which is totally different than yours because we, uh, our identities are different, right? And so our experience of reading this book is different, is that I think that there was this, that was the moment when I realized that I hadn't picked up on the pattern at all. Yeah. That the things, that, that the, the slights and the um, transactional nature of Harlow's friendship with Juliet wasn't obvious to me until it was suddenly so obvious. Mm. And then I had to go back and really think about like, you've really helped me think about all of the ways, all of the like death by a thousand cuts, mm -hmm. that all of these little itty bitty pieces um, throughout the book that lead to this, because it wasn't obvious to me. I'll be honest. I don't know if it was obvious to Juliet, yeah. because Juliet is so gracious and humble, really came into this internship with, I have everything to learn from this hero, hero, heroine, whatever, of mine, this feminist icon. She knows everything. I have everything to learn. Uh, nothing to teach. And I think this moment helped her go, holy moly, none of this is what I signed up for. I'm realizing now that not only do I hold others on a pedestal and not believe in myself enough because I have so much potential and capacity, but I, I gave this person too much benefit of the doubt. And every time that she disappointed me or rubbed me the wrong way, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, I couldn't quite figure out why my gut was telling me this was wonky, I, it's connecting. That helps me. I still think that I could fine-tune my own capacity to see this. I hear you. But yeah, it's yeah. a lot. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite characters in this book is Juliet's cousin Ava. Yes, she's so oh, rad. My goodness. So what Juliet needs a break, obviously, from Harlow after after that book, that epic fail at the bookstore. And um, so she goes to visit her cousin Ava in Miami. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to say, when I was reading page 225, I wanted portions of it written in the sky in big bold letters yes and so um Ava very graciously is sort of educating Juliet about trans folks um could you read from page 225 um there's just this one part that I just want written in the sky in big bold letters I clasped my hands over my belly mulling over what Ava had said before this summer I never considered there was anything beyond he or she or that folks could experience a multitude of genders within their person. Like, what? 
That sounded amazing, beautiful, wild like the universe. Why not just ask someone straight up if they're trans, I asked. Girl, how rude do you plan to be in this life? She questioned, stretching out on her big-ass bed. Your one job is to just accept what a person feels comfortable sharing about themselves. No one owes you info on their gender, parts, or sexuality. Mind blown. So, yeah, I loved that part as well. I thought that was really beautiful. I love no one owes you. No one owes you. Yeah, I loved the way that Ava explained pronouns in such a real way, right? And juxtaposing that with the way that Juliet was exposed to it in Oregon, which was very confusing and abrupt and um, condescending. And the way Ava explains it in this like, come on, you know this already kind of way. In very inviting way, but also challenging way. Like, come on, you got this. You're better than this. And then the way that she says, like, what are you just going to ask somebody if they're trans? Are you rude? Come on, you know better than that, right? And and doesn't shame her, just blows her mind. And I loved that. But um, we have to remember where we come from. And I think that Ava teaches um, her this in such a beautiful way, really helps Juliet see, you already know this in your bones. You just needed to be introduced to this and not in a condescending paternalistic white supremacist way of how did you not know what a pronoun is how do you not know who Sylvia Rivera is but hey you don't know your history because you don't have access to this I had to seek this out let me teach you this as a you know cousin to cousin brown girl to brown girl you know and so I just thought it was so beautiful on so many levels I really appreciate you picking out that passage yeah I I really loved that section that whole cousin um, you talked about cousins earlier on in the episode, and I thought immediately of Ava because she's just such a, mm-hmm. uh, a sister cousin, if you will. We are out of time. Um, we have listeners, um, Dolan and I have curated a ton of books because that's who we are, mm-hmm. readers and curators of books. We love books. And we're going to put a list up on the transcript of some um queer and trans, people of color fiction, some nonfiction, um, some books that you might read on your own, some books that you might um, provide in your school or in your library, in your classroom. Um, So many books. We're going to put up some great lists for you on the transcript. Um, But we're out of time to talk about them, even though I feel like we could talk for days about these books. It's a great list. Mm. Um, Dolan, I want to thank you so, so, so much for um, coming, for talking about this book, for talking about your personal experience, Mm. your lived experience, for sharing that with us, and for um, answering all my questions. Thank you for having me. I adore this book. And... It's not the most well-known book, which makes me sad because it. when it came out, I remember feeling really excited. I was like, bought it immediately and thought that it would be a big book. And I'm surprised by how few libraries or other places have this book. I really appreciate you going out of your way to read it and loving it and talking about it with me because this book brings me a lot of joy and also peace. I adore this book and I adore you. Thank I you so you. much. Thank you, Jeannie. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you so much to Dolan for appearing on the show and talking with me about Juliet Takes a Breath. If you're looking for a copy of Juliet Takes a Breath, check your local library. 
If they don't have it, request that they buy it. Special thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer extraordinaire. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.